Okay, so 2 Samuel, chapter 9, and we're going to start the first verse. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba, and they called him to appear before David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba, your servant? He replied. The king asked, Is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodibar. So King David had him brought from Lodibar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honour. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table, and he was crippled in both feet. Thank you, Laura. Uh, as Neil's mentioned already, this morning we're going to be thinking about kindness together. Now, <clears throat> kindness. Kindness, I think, is a quality an action or, or a characteristic uh, that, that we'll all be very familiar with. We know kindness when we see it, don't we? And, and I'm pretty sure that when we think about it, we like to think that we are all relatively kind. And generally, you know, over the past couple of years, in the world at large, kindness is a quality that has come to the fore. Since the start of the COVID pandemic, there has been more and more discussion about kindness. And it's generally reported that coronavirus has led to an increase in our kindness. So much so that BBC Radio 4, together with Sussex University, launched a large-scale study of kindness last year called The Kindness Test. 
which is a bit of an austere name, isn't it, for something about kindness, but they launched it called the Kindness Test. And they surveyed 60,000 people about the kindness that they give and experience. <clears throat> and before this survey, the, the scientists said that they already knew quite a bit about kindness. Most of these things that they know, I expect that you and I would already know from, well, living life. Uh, but they, they've shown, scientifically, uh, that kindness is contagious. That if someone is kind to you, you are statistically, statistically uh, more likely to be kind to somebody else. And there are you know, the stories of, of drive-through fast food places or coffee shops where everyone pays for the next person's order and it goes down the chain. They pay for the person behind them and it, it keeps going. Um, and, and I know personally that if someone very generously lets me into the traffic on the one-way system, then I am far more likely to let somebody else in further down my journey. Kindness is just contagious. And we know that kindness makes us feel good both receiving kindness and giving kindness. And it's actually uh, good for our mental well-being. Acting kindly has been shown to reduce our anxiety. So receiving kindness is good. It's contagious. When you receive it, you're more likely to be kind to someone else. It feels good um, to be kind. Being kind generally makes us uh, happier, healthier people. Kindness is just generally great, isn't it? And with all this, you think that kindness, kindness alone, should be able to change the world. <clears throat> now, if Radio 4 is not your cup of tea, uh, allow me to quote the words of Harry Styles, who says in one of his songs, um, that's on Radio 2, which is more commonly played in our household, uh, maybe we can find a place to feel good where we can treat people with kindness. Find a place to feel good. Now, Harry's essentially saying the same basic thing about kindness as the intellectuals are. Uh, kindness makes us feel good. Treating each other with kindness, being treated with kindness. And it should change the world. Which all begs the question, why are we not more kind to each other? Why can't we find this place to feel good? Why can't we just be kind? And that was one of the, the main questions that the researchers were interested in in their big survey on kindness. And all of that shows us that we, we don't really get kindness. We know it's there, we experience it, uh, and we're actually probably quite kind fairly often. But our world doesn't have a good answer as to why we're kind or why we're not kind. We're very confused about kindness. So this morning... Uh, I want to help us put the record straight about kindness. And I hope that by the end of the morning, we'll be clear about what kindness is, uh, where it comes from, why we're kind, uh, and why we're not kind. And we're going to do that because kindness is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Which means that we can already see that kindness is directly connected to the character of God and the person of Jesus, as we've seen with all of our fruits so far in this series. If we want to properly understand kindness, we need to put it into that context. And we're going to begin by digging into perhaps the clearest picture of kindness in the Bible, in the passage that Laura has just read for us in 2 Samuel chapter 9. Please do uh, turn back there in your Bibles uh, and, and look at that uh, with me, and we'll see our first point, the kindness of the king. And there's an outline on the notice sheet as well, so you can follow that there. <coughs> 
the kindness of the king. And we're jumping into the middle of King David's story here, right actually into the highest point of the story. It doesn't get any better uh, than this, uh, than these chapters for David. If you, in your Bible, just flick back a couple of pages, you'll see that David's just captured Jerusalem, which is his capital city, and he's defeated his enemies. He's brought peace and stability to the nation of Israel. He's brought the Ark of the Covenant to the capital, and God has made him some incredible promises of an everlasting dynasty. And all of that shows us that the national and the religious life of Israel is as good as it gets here. We're two chapters, chapter number two chapters away from David's great downfall with Bathsheba. And before that, these are David's glory days. These are the very best moments of David's reign. And we focus on kindness. Let me need to see, first of all, that that is a big surprise. If you were to focus on the glory days of, of any ancient civilization, you might think of their incredible technology. You think of the Romans and all the roads that they built everywhere and the aqueducts that they built as well. Or, or the Greeks and their learning and their democracy that they pioneered. In every other civilization, the mark of peacetime is, is progress in all and every kind of scientific field. But, but not this kingdom. We're not hearing about how Jerusalem grew and became an incredible city, <clears throat> or how the Israelite farmers developed the double yoke, triple ox, and quad blade super plow if they developed such a thing. No, no, the height, the absolute height of David's kingdom, the height of David's reign, is kindness. Maybe this begins to answer some of our world's questions already. When God's king is on the throne, he's going to lead a kingdom of kindness place where people are treated with kindness. Maybe, but we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. Let's dig into the kindness that we see here from David. The chapter opens with David looking for a member of Saul's family to show kindness to. Saul was the former king of Israel who had rejected God and had seen the kingdom removed from his family line to be given to David. And much of the story of 1 and 2 Samuel is the story of Saul attempting to kill David and pursuing him across Israel. Jonathan was Saul's son and heir. And more importantly, he loved and recognized David as the one who would rescue God's people. <clears throat> David had promised kindness to Jonathan back in 1 Samuel chapter 20, if you want to look it up later. And David is making good on his promise now as he looks to find a member of Saul's family to be kind to for the sake of Jonathan. The very first thing we see here about David's kindness is how it takes initiative. David goes out and he searches for someone to be kind to. Someone from the family of his enemy to show kindness to. And as we read on, we see what form that kindness takes. The story first introduces us to Zeba, a servant of Saul's household, a man who would know the details of the whole family, including any surviving remnants. Zeba then brings them to Mephibosheth. Now, poor Mephibosheth is lame in both feet. He is unable to work or serve or fight. And in a war-torn agricultural community such as Israel's, he had very little practical to offer, and even less to offer the king. Nevertheless, he's, he's brought before David, and you can imagine how he's feeling, can't you? He's been brought to, to, to the palace 
to confront the new king, he'd be terrified. This man, the king, could quite easily end his life there and then, and given how Saul had treated David, he wouldn't be surprised if he did. And yet, David speaks kindly to Mephibosheth. He tells him not to be afraid, and then he restores his status and gives him back Saul's land. No longer is Mephibosheth going to have to hide far from Jerusalem, effectively sofa surfing, without a penny to his name or ability to get a job for himself. Now he's been given the status of a landowner. He has a standing again. He has an income. He has a home. But it's not enough for David. Uh, Look at the end of verse 10, where it says, And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. David's kindness is wonderfully generous. It's not enough for Mephibosheth to simply be reinstated to what used to be his. David goes beyond that. Mephibosheth will eat at David's table for the rest of his life. Now, this is more than just simply providing Mephibosheth with a, a lifetime ticket to the buffet, as good as that would be. Verse 11 makes it clear what David is offering here. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. David is treating him as one of his sons. He's giving him this incredibly privileged relationship with the king. David's kindness, we see, is hugely generous. And it's costly, too. Saul's land isn't a simple small holding with a couple of cows and a small flock of sheep from Mephibosheth and a couple of people to live on. We're told in verse 10 again that Zeba's household will farm the land for Mephibosheth. And his household contains 15 sons and 20 servants. It's a decent operation that's going to be going on here, isn't it? David's generous kindness is not insignificant. There's a material cost to giving Mephibosheth his land back and providing a home for him in Jerusalem for the rest of his life. And there's a great open-ended promise that hangs in the air with all its material cost and then the relational cost of adding to David's household. The emotional cost as David provides for his friend Jonathan's family after Jonathan's death. So this is David's kindness. Initiative, generous, costly. I love the final note of the story in verse 13. As we break the flow of the story and the narrator pulls the camera back, you can imagine uh, the scene flashing forward as we see meal after meal after meal at David's table. The seasons change outside, the faces age as the narrator speaks, and we see David's kindness lived out through the years. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table, and he was crippled in both feet. In the midst of this great story, Mephibosheth asks just one question. In verse 8, he asks, why? Why me? Why be kind to me, a dead dog? Now, that question might sound a little bit harsh, as he describes himself as a dead dog, but it's, it's really just honest. Mephibosheth knows his place. He knows his standing. And so he asks, why give him this kindness? <clears throat> and the question, it isn't really answered directly in this passage. It's just left hanging open, because the answer is all about David. Why this kindness? Because this is God's king in God's kingdom. He will keep his covenant. He promised kindness and he will deliver kindness. He is the king of kindness, 
Kindness is a mark of his kingdom. We see that again at the start of chapter 10, as David again seeks to show kindness to his enemies. David is thoroughly kind. His kingdom is a place of kindness where the lowly are lifted and cared for. And this really is the pinnacle of life on earth and its kindness. So we consider David's reign. We're actually seeing a glimpse of God's kingdom, especially at this point in his story. As we thought earlier on, this is, this is the highest point of David's kingdom. And it is awash with kindness. Kindness that is led by God's king. In many ways, that shouldn't be a surprise. Kindness is baked into God's law. It's everywhere you look, in every law about how people should be treated. But perhaps most clearly, in the words of Leviticus chapter 19, very famous words that say, love your neighbor as yourself. Which often paraphrase, treat others as you want to be treated. Those words, love your neighbor as yourself, sum up the very essence of kindness in the heart of God's law for how his people should live. The king was to lead them in their obedience. The king was to lead them in their kindness, just as we see here. Now we know, don't we, that this doesn't last. If you turn over the page in 2 Samuel, we'll see David's failure. And from there, the kingdom tears itself apart with unkindness after unkindness. For all of David's successes... He did not bring this everlasting kingdom. He was not always kind. If then even David's kindness failed, and he he was the very best, the kindest of men, what hope do we have for lasting kindness? The world that we glimpse in 2 Samuel chapter 9, it looks good, doesn't it? It's a world that we want to live in where people are treated like that. But we know, we know that we are often unkind people. We know that for every act of, a random act of kindness, as a random act of unkindness. If we could see every act and every thought in the world, I have no doubt that we'd see there's a great many more acts of unkindness than kindness. We long for lasting kindness. We're going to look for it together in Titus chapter 3. Please turn up Titus chapter 3. The page numbers are on the screen, and I'll read it for us starting at verse 3. So we move on to lasting kindness. Fantastic. Titus chapter 3, starting at verse 3, says, At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. <clears throat> Did you notice how verse 3 describes the reality of life in our world? Let me read it again. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated 
hating one another. These verses describe our dysfunctional relationships. They're they're very similar to the descriptions of the acts of the flesh in Galatians that we've seen over the past few weeks. The the kind of anti-fruits, if you like. Just as the fruits of the Spirit are relational, showing us how to relate to one another, so the acts of the flesh are relational breakdown. These verses describe our world, and they describe our hearts. By nature, this is what every one of us is like. This is why we aren't always kind. Even though we know that kindness is good for us, and it's good for others, we cheat on kindness. As it puts it in Galatians we've seen before, we live for selfish ambition rather than others. You don't have to look far to see this, do you? You can read the news headlines on any given day, and you'll see a senseless killing here, or or a relational scandal over there, or somebody being taken advantage of, and, and the list could just go on and on. We're almost desensitized to what we see, aren't we? We're only shocked by the grossest unkindness. Ordinary, everyday unkindness just washes over us as if it's, as if it's nothing. Not that we even need to look that far afield. You can look at the people around you and see unkindness. It's always easier to see unkindness in others. Or you can be really honest and you can look back at your week and see how you've acted. You can see the choices you've made, decisions you've taken, words you've said. Sometimes we're kind, but often we're not. I don't think I've ever felt, uh, felt this as much and felt as hypocritical as maybe I feel this week, standing up here this morning, speaking about kindness. Because I can see how often I am unkind to my, to my family, to my, to my friends, to my work colleagues. I so often am filled with selfish ambition. I chase passion and pleasure. And I live in envy. I know that these words in verse 3 are true. I'm sure that you do too. On our own, we cannot achieve lasting kindness. We're enslaved to our own passions and pleasure. We're enslaved by our own flesh. But, but the kindness of God appears. Take a look at Titus, uh, chapter 3, verses 4 and 5 with me. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Into our mess of unkindness, the kindness and love of God appear and save us. He breaks our cycle of hating and being hated. He brings new, lasting kindness and he frees us from our slavery. How does the kindness of God appear? It's in the person of Jesus, the very kindest man who's ever lived. It's his kindness that can rescue us. He takes the initiative, steps into our broken world, not because of anything we've done, not because of our righteousness, not because one day humanity's random acts of kindness outweighed our unkindness, and God decided that now we were good enough to be saved. There's no way our own kindness can create that place to feel good. We need to be saved from our unkindness. And Jesus saves us in the midst of our unkindness. He shows us real, true, lasting kindness. We looked at David's kindness to Mephibosheth, and that's a wonderful picture of God's kindness and God's kingdom. But it's just a picture. Jesus brings the real thing. You can read it in the gospel accounts of Jesus' life and see just how kind he is. If you haven't time this morning to look at every time that Jesus is kind, because he is always kind. 
in how he speaks to people, how he cares for and eats with sinners, welcoming them, how he speaks truth to people, how he heals the sick, feeds the hungry, welcomes little children, how he bears with his disciples when they don't understand, how he, he listens to people and their questions, how he weeps for those facing judgment, how he teaches again and again and again the same truths so that people would understand. We could go on and on. David, David was the king of kindness, but Jesus is the kindest king. And most of all, we see Jesus' kindness as he dies for us. This is the kindness and love of God. How in his mercy, he takes the initiative to rescue his people. People who don't want to be rescued. People who don't know they need to be rescued. People who are so oblivious to the kindness that they, that they, they need, they actually kill Jesus ourselves. David takes the initiative to seek out Mephibosheth, the son of his enemy, and Mephibosheth gladly receives David's kindness. Jesus takes the initiative to rescue his enemies who reject him at every turn. This is the costliest of kindness as Jesus gives his life to rescue his people. At no point does he falter, but he resolves to pay the price of his kindness to see his people saved. There is no greater cost than giving your life. What more? What more can anyone pay? Yet Jesus gladly pays this cost to save us. And he is more generous than we can imagine. He rescues us from the judgment we deserve for our unkindness. We know that unkindness deserves something, doesn't it? We know it instinctively. There must be justice. But he pays that cost so that we can be right with God. He generously takes our place to save us. But his kindness doesn't end there. Look down again at Titus 3, verse 5. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us, through, on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Jesus' generous kindness has two further effects beyond simply saving us, as if that weren't enough. There's a present effect and a future effect. In the present, we're washed, reborn, renewed by the Spirit. Spirit he has given to us. Those who trust in Jesus are completely transformed. They're washed, cleansed of their unkindness and their slavery. The old, painful way of life is now in the past. Verse 3 is all in the past, isn't it? This was the experience of the Christian, but now they are cleansed. And not just clean to a state where they'll get dirty again, but, but renewed, reborn, made people who are new, who won't get dirty again, able to live a new life shaped by the Spirit. If you're a Christian this morning, then this is true of you. You are renewed by the Spirit if you trust in Jesus. You have been washed to live a new life, a life that will be changed by the Spirit, a life full of His fruits, as we've been thinking about in this series. Well, that is a, a wonderful truth. But it's not enough the generous kindness of God, because there's a future effect to this generosity too. God's generosity not only transforms our present, it revolutionizes our future. Now we're made right with God by his grace, we become heirs of the hope of eternal life. Now that we're right with God, we can look forward to eternity with him. Life lived in the lasting kindness of God's perfect kingdom. 
This verse speaks of a future hope, eternal life with God, the reality that David's kingdom pointed to. As people saved by God's kindness, we have eternity in his kingdom to look forward to. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before. I don't think I had before I spent time digging into this fruit these past few weeks. But God's kingdom, eternity, heaven, will be a place of abundant kindness. As David's kingdom pointed forwards, as Jesus showed in his life on earth, so we can look forward to spending eternity giving and receiving kindness. Kindness from God, who generously gives at great cost and welcomes us in, and kindness to each other as we live in perfect relationship as God's people, as we were created to be. Now, I find that a staggering thought. <clears throat> kindness is good now, isn't it? We, we know it's good. It makes us happy. It makes others happy. But, but that's really just the first fruits of kindness. We're going to spend eternity knowing the joy of kindness more and more as we become more like Jesus, the kindest king. Now, if you're not trusting in Jesus this morning, then I'd like to pause and invite you to explore this kindness. Read the gospel accounts of Jesus' life and see his kindness on every page. We're all searching for lasting kindness, but only Jesus can truly bring it. If this is all new to you, then, then please do speak to me or Neil or the person that you've come with this morning. We'd love to help you understand more of the kindness of Jesus. See, Jesus' kindness both saves us and it creates our own kindness. It's not, it's not when it says that, it's not that uh, Jesus' kindness is contagious and we kind of look at what he's done, we see that it's very kind, we catch his kindness. It's that he's remade us to be the people who are truly kind, people who have this fruit of kindness. The change that Jesus brings is immediate and it's lasting, but its effect on our life grows over time. <clears throat> There's a reason that the fruits of the Spirit are called fruits. They grow kind of little by little. You've got to put some effort in to see results. And even with that effort, uh, sometimes results can seem very small and insignificant, almost non-existent. You can tell uh, that I have very low success with fruit in my garden, can't you? All the effort, nothing to show from it. But then sometimes, overnight, everything ripens. I mean, it's, it's great. Uh, the final verse of Titus 3 reminds us of this uh, reality. Look at that, verse uh, 8 of chapter 3. It says, This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. <clears throat> We've got to devote ourselves to doing what is good. It's right to do so. and We need to devote ourselves to the Spirit's renewal in us. And that's going to be excellent and it's going to be profitable. So let's think about what that will look like together. What's it going to look like to be these kind of kind people? In our final point, the fruit of kindness. <clears throat> now we've seen, haven't we, a great example of kindness in King David. We've seen God's lasting kindness expressed to us in the kindest king, Jesus, who is kind and makes us kind. What's it going to look like for us to exhibit this fruit? Well, to think about that, I want to take you to Christmas Day morning. I don't know how your Christmas Day morning looks. 
I could take an educated guess. I expect that there's some form of present opening. Maybe there's a slightly busy bathroom schedule with more people crammed into your house altogether. There's anticipation, excitement for the day that's starting. Maybe you're up very early putting a turkey in the oven. Maybe you're putting something else in the oven. Maybe you're not even using an oven at all. I don't know. It looks something like that, I'm sure. G growing up, one of my highlights of Christmas Day <coughs> was breakfast. Um, I like breakfast at the best of times. I'd very happily eat multiple courses of breakfast every day if I could. Um, it's, it's probably my favorite meal. Uh, but Christmas Day morning was special, unique, exciting. And it was all those things, because Christmas Day morning, once a year, I would have this. I'll leave it there so we can look at it. Once a year, Christmas Day morning, I'd have gold top jersey milk. The fattiest and richest milk you can pour over cereal. It's, it's barely milk. It's almost cream. Um, it's just decadent. And, and I'd look forward to Christmas Day morning and a big bowl of Cocoa Pops with jersey milk. And hopefully there'll be some left over for Boxing Day too. What, what's jersey milk got to do with kindness? Well, <coughs> it's a big question, isn't it? Well, I, I think... I think it's going to help us to understand the difference between fruity kindness and kind of just kindness. Because we know, we know that people are kind. Christians do not have a monopoly on kindness. I know a great many people who don't trust Jesus, who are kind, who have been very kind to me personally. Yet I think there's something richer about fruity kindness. You can think of it like this. If gospel kindness is jersey milk, Worldly kindness is skimmed milk. Or, or at the best, maybe, maybe semi-skimmed milk, but, but mostly skimmed milk. Um, where Jersey milk is fat and it's full and it's rich, skim milk is, well, it is milk, isn't it? But it's, but it's lacking. It's lacking something. It's not the full picture. Um, I've, got, I've got these two bottles uh, of milk, um, and some more bottles in the fridge over there. Uh, if you, you're normally in grub groups, if you're in primary school, then you can find Erin in the hall at the end. You can try some Jersey milk and some skim milk. See if you can see the difference that I'm talking about. And I think, I think it's a helpful comparison because both are milk. Just one is richer and the other. Kindness is always kind. And it's going to look very similar. It will perform the same function on a bowl of cereal. But one is deeper and richer and fattier than the other. True gospel kindness is born from the new life Jesus brings. It's tied to the gospel of Christ. It's the very opposite of the self-interested attitude of our flesh. See, true kindness asks the question, what can I do for somebody else? Kindness is loving your neighbor as yourself. It's valuing others above yourself. It is far removed from the Galatian selfish ambition and envy and indulging the flesh. It is the very attitude of Christ. <clears throat> Let me try, I'll put these away. Let me try and give you uh, an example uh, of what I mean by returning to our friends from the Sussex Center for Research on Kindness. One of the questions they were asking in their survey was, what is the most common act of kindness? We found a bit of a short list, kind of top 10 of kindness, including things like holding doors open for people, and helping strangers pick up things they've dropped, and 
having concerned feelings for people less fortunate than themselves. Now, all of those are kind. It's often easier to walk past a poor stranger struggling with the books or the shopping or whatever else it is they've dropped. But I'd say those are examples of thinner kindness. See, They're mostly kind of in, acts in the category of random acts of kindness, aren't they? Acts that might make us feel good, but they're at a very low cost. They're, at a, they're a one-off act. They're not built into relationship. And sometimes, with the kind of having concerned feelings, um, they don't even make it to an action, do they? That's quite a thin form of kindness. It's not that they aren't kind actions and feelings, but they aren't filled with the richness of the gospel kindness that we see from David and Jesus. The initiative-taking, generous, costly kindness. The most common act of kindness reported was actually helping people when they ask. And often, that is very kind. Asking for help takes a great deal of humility on the part of the asking and trust that the person asked will be kind. This can often be rich kindness springing from a relationship of love and a history of costly generosity. In the Gospels, we see Jesus ask for help, and we see his kindness shown as he responds time and time again. But even then, I think that this, helping people when they ask, can sometimes be thin kindness, particularly if all or most of the kindness that you show to people is in response to somebody else asking. If you only show kindness when people ask for help, what does that show about your relationships and how you're thinking about them? I'm not saying it's always going to be thin, but I know that's something I want to think about more, and I'd encourage you to do the same. Because rich, fatty kindness, it springs from love for people, being involved in the mess of people's lives. And that's going to give you the opportunity to offer kindness before you're asked. <clears throat> now, I'm thankful. I'm thankful to be in a church family, which I know is full of rich, fatty kindness. I can think of many examples of kindness to me and to my family. I'm going to pick one to share with you, an example of this rich kindness. A member of our church family had been around at our house, uh, chatting and playing with my children. They'd read some Percy the Park Keeper stories together. Uh, and my boys love Percy and all his animal friends, particularly uh, Badger and Fox. Uh, a couple of days later, this person dropped round, unannounced, uh, and they dropped round with a, a, a lovely Percy the Park Keeper book that their children were no longer reading. It's, it's a really lovely book. It's, it's got lots of stories that they'd not read before that weren't, that we didn't already have. And, and we, will, we will give it back soon, because um, we love reading it. Now, that might seem awfully small in the grand scheme of things, but it's that great initiative-focused kindness that Jesus shows, the kindness that listens to small children and puts the effort in to do something for them without being asked. There's an effort cost to rich kindness that can't be measured in monetary value or time spent because kindness is love in action. It needs relationship, and it thrives in relationship and caring for others. I could think of many other examples that I've seen in our church family, both seemingly trivial and staggeringly important. Examples of people praying for each other and really knowing their burdens, putting time in to speak to God for the things that they know are hard. Or helping each other practically, sharing meals, caring for each other in all sorts of different practical ways. Or speaking the truth to one another, teaching each other about God's kindness and encouraging each other to keep trusting in Jesus. 
all rich, fatty kindness springing from relationship. You see, kindness will make us feel good, but if that's the beginning and the end of our kindness, we're missing the big picture. It's thin kindness, because it's all about how I feel. If our hope is based on creating a better world through this kindness, then it will fail. Because sooner or later, the best thing for us will be to cheat on kindness. But if, in our, if our hope is in an eternity of kindness, one through God's great kindness to us, then we will become people of fatty kindness. It's only that eternal perspective that can free us from the immediacy of our selfish ambition. If our hope is about the future, then the immediate cost of our kindness is going to grow smaller and smaller. The cost of thinking about others, the material cost of acting kindly, the emotional cost of kindness being ignored or presumed upon. Because this life isn't all there is. We have a secure hope of lasting kindness to look forward to. We no longer need to live fighting to make our corner of the world the best it can be. We can now live for the good of others. So let me encourage you this morning. Be kind. Value others above yourselves. Share life together so we can live in rich, fatty kindness of relationship. It's going to be much, much messier than the swift, quick, easy, random acts of kindness. It, It might be very costly. It might make us feel bad rather than good as we bear some of that cost. But it's all going to help us to live life towards the great hope of an eternity of kindness. And the kindest thing you can do is to tell others about God's kindness in Jesus. If we truly love our neighbors as ourselves, we'll follow Christ's example and want to see them trusting in him, rescued for eternity. That is the first result of God's kindness. And it must be the first priority of our kindness. It certainly won't make us always feel good, but it will always be kind. Jesus' kindness has freed us from our selfish ambition, and we can show true kindness now and for eternity. Let's pray that this kindness will be seen in us and reflect the kindness of Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your kindness. Thank you that Jesus came into our world of unkindness and selfish ambition and saved us. Thank you that he paid the cost in his own life to rescue us and renew us. Father, thank you that by your spirit we can be kind people. People uh, that can be rich in kindness to others, who put others first, valuing them above ourselves. Please do you make us more like that. Please do you help us to love others as ourselves. And please would this cause us to speak the truth about Jesus to people and to care for their needs now as we look forward to an eternity of kindness with you. Amen.